0: Get iXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off iXL membership when they sign up today at iXL.com slash audio. Visit iXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
1: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. I just wanted to say up top that... This episode was recorded several months ago, but now that we're releasing it, we felt it best to mention right here up front that this is an account of an explicit sexual scenario where issues of the racial tensions in America come into play. Now, I spoke with the storyteller, Melina Williams, before we finalized the episode, and she said, and I'm quoting her here, Prior to the story being told, I just want to acknowledge and demonstrate respect for the reality of our daily lives in a racially divided country where the divide is underscored by so many people in the privileged class refusal to acknowledge their complicity. I just want people to know that this story represents a complicated, difficult approach to processing complicated, difficult issues. And so with that said, now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Anthony Rajakoff behind me now. On today's episode, one of my dear friends and a hero of mine, Melina Williams, the one and only, such a remarkable person, I think that will show in the story that she is about to tell. I've been really excited about this story for a while now. I heard rumors in the kink community about the incident that uh, Melina describes in this story, so I asked her to come over and share it with me. But I had no idea <laughs> that it is such an epic uh, tale. We are about to go many different places in the next hour. But we have the most extraordinarily wonderful uh, field guide who is taking us on this journey. Melina is, uh, you can find her at The Perverted Negress. (laughs) Her website says, it ain't just the hair that's kinky. And she is also the author of the book, Playing Well With Others wonderful book. I highly recommend it. It's kind of an introduction, a beginner's guide to discovering the kink community. She wrote that book with the wonderful Mr. Lee Harrington, who you've heard on the show as well. So without further ado, let's dive right on into this remarkable adventure. This is Melina Williams with the story we call Slave <laughs>
2: a science fiction geek as a kid when I was four or five I started watching Star Trek the original series for those of you kids in the in the audience who uh, think that Captain Picard was all that it actually was all about Captain Kirk and I had the hugest crush on him I thought he was the hottest man who had ever walked the planet and there was one episode where there was this green Orion slave girl who was dancing for Captain Kirk and they were talking about how the Orion slave girls were the sexiest and the hottest and most beautiful most desirable woman women in the galaxy and I was like I want to be a dancing Orion slave girl and there was another episode where you had um, Captain Kirk and I think it was Uhura and one of the other crewmen were captured and they had these collars on them and they were made to run around this maze and train and there was another woman who was the trainer and she was all hardcore and then Kirk made out with her and that was all hot and sexy and the big turning point for me was the episode with Khan and there was this moment where the woman who was on the crew fell madly in love with him and he was asking her to betray the entire enterprise for him and she said no I can't do that and then he smacks her across the face and knocks her to the ground and she comes crawling across the floor back to him begging him to accept her and he says to her you may stay or you may leave but do it because it is what you wish to do. And so she crawls across to him, apparently at that point, you're like, of her own free will, she's saying, yes, I'm going to crawl for you because you are so manly and so amazing and I will submit to you. And I'm watching this going, yeah, I I, I think that that's a, a good thing to have happen. And so I started developing these fantasies about submission and having it be romantic And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to have someone own you to belong to somebody? That idea was so hot to me. And then a couple years later, we hit 1977 and Roots comes on television. And I'm now watching people who look like me being treated rather poorly by white people. And I had been aware of the idea of slavery, but it had never been so graphically depicted for me before. And so now I'm watching this and I'm seeing other black people enslaved and beaten and humiliated and their families torn apart and they're in chains. And I felt horrible because some part of my brain thought, well, you thought that this was kind of exciting and now you're seeing it in this other context. And so, of course, being a bright, precocious kid, I was like, "Okay, I got to figure this out. All right. So if slavery is white people doing bad things to black people, but All white people couldn't be evil. So maybe there was someone who owned slaves who was actually nice and treated them well. And maybe it wouldn't be so bad to be a slave if your master was nice to you. And so I said, well, what if your master was like Captain Kirk? Captain Kirk would never, ever whip his slaves. He would always be nice to them and maybe kiss them sometimes. And so I remember asking my mom, I said, mommy, would being a slave be okay if your master was nice to you? And you can imagine my mom, just the look on her face like, Lord Jesus, help me with this child. I think she (laughs) prayed a lot, my mom. And she said, no, Mo, there is nothing ever okay about slavery. Slavery is the worst thing that people can do to other people. It can be worse than death. And so my conclusion then was that I had fantasies about something worse than death, It was horrifying and terrible, and there was no way I could ever tell anyone about the fact that I thought that this was kind of sexy. Fast forward through my early childhood development, sexually, where my first boyfriend and I, we did a lot of crazy sex stuff. I mean, I was 16 and he was 18 or 19, so we just fucked all the time, like you do when you're in high school and having sex. I never brought up my fantasies specifically of submission because we did a lot of kinky sex, but the power was always evenly switched between us. I would tie him up, he would tie me up, you know, we sort of would flip coins for it, you know, and so that really didn't matter so much. It wasn't until I left New York and moved to Los Angeles and I'd moved there with a boyfriend, he and I broke up eventually, And I went on this rampage and I was just like banging everything in sight. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna focus more on myself. I'm gonna be less slutty. I'm gonna celebrate myself as an independent woman. Then I met this guy. I was at Barney's Beanery with three of my girlfriends, swilling beer in a booth right by the pool table. This guy was on the other side of the table playing pool with these other dudes. And he was wearing this very dapper suit with the shirt unbuttoned down a little bit. And he was tall, really pale, green eyes, really dark hair. He was hot, and he was a musician, and he was British, and I have a thing with instant genital explosions anytime it has an accent it gets used against me frequently, I know <laughs> there's a whole island of them just waiting to get you <laughs> I'd never had anyone give me a look that so clearly said oh yeah, I could have that if I wanted and I'm looking at him I'm thinking what the hell? you don't get to look at me like that And I looked at my friends, and they were like, that guy's checking me out. I'm like, I don't know who he thinks he is, but he needs to just back off. And every time I looked up at him, he was looking at me for the next, like, half hour, 45 minutes. And then finally, what happened to sort of break the ice, so to speak, is he was still playing pool, came around to the side of the pool table that was closest to us, and bent over so his ass was literally a foot from my face. And so I tapped him on the butt, and I said, excuse me, your butt is intruding on our booth. Do you mind? And he turned around and said, oh, sorry, love. Cheers. Didn't mean to put my bum in your face. And I was like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> Don't worry. That's fine. And my friends are like, oh, shit. <laughs> and so to apologize, he offered to buy me a beer, which I, of course, accepted. And then he invited himself to sit in the booth. And we were just chatting and he says, oh, yeah, I just got in about two hours or so ago. And I said, oh, where are you coming from? And he is on tour with another musician, with another band. And he sort of had me wedged into the booth. At least that's how I felt, because every time he made any sort of contact with me, casual knee brushing against my knee or his elbow hit mine. It was like my entire body turned inside out. I was having such an intense physical reaction. I was tongue-tied. I was flustered. I couldn't make eye contact with him. And then when I did, I couldn't look away. It was so magnetic and so spot on. And he knew it. And it was making me nuts because I was like, you arrogant prick. He could just see that I was completely at a loss and there was nothing I could do to try to play it cool. So every time I sort of flinched away from him, he would move a little bit closer and then I would start to giggle and I would be blushing. And my friends are looking at me like, what is happening to her? Because they had never seen me react this way in any situation ever, completely at a loss. It was just not me. So the next night we went out and had drinks, had dinner, were hanging out, got late At one point in the evening, I had gotten up to go to the bathroom, and I came out of the bathroom, and I feel a hand around my neck. And this guy grabs me by the throat and pulls me into the bedroom of this hotel suite where he's staying and throws me up against a wall and leans in and says, You've been a very bad girl. You've been teasing me all night. And I said, I, um, I'm sorry? I, what, uh... He says, do you know what happens to bad girls? And I said, no, I don't, I don't. What, what happens? (laughs) He starts pulling off his belt. And to this day, like if I hear someone start to unbuckle their belt and that really slow sound that the loops make as the end of the belt flips through, I get a little bit dizzy. And he takes off his belt and wraps it around my neck and starts pulling it really tight. And I'm having a hard time breathing. And he yanks me towards him and picks me up off of the floor and throws me down on the bed and starts yanking down my underpants and throws up my skirt and starts beating the crap out of my ass with his hand. And he's choking me with the belt and he's saying unbelievably terrible things to me about what a bitch I am and what a slut I am and what kind of whore do I think I am, how dare I tease him, and I'm going to pay. And I'm thinking, okay, um, yeah, so... This is feeling a lot to me like what a sexual assault would feel like. And yet, I'm more turned on than I've been in my entire life. I was wet and shaking and begging him to have mercy, not to stop. (laughs) I was not I at no point said stop or no I said just please have mercy please please he at one point finally said okay well I need for you to beg for it if you want it you're gonna have to beg for it my brain is going you are not going to beg for anything how dare he who the hell does he think he is you're gonna beg for it, and my open mouth and I'm like please oh my god please fuck me please I need it so bad please And proceeds to just have the most violent, aggressive, greedy, selfish, piggish fuck. And I think I probably had an orgasm for the entire, like, hour, hour and a half that we were fucking. I'm finally laying there just spent afterwards and he jumps up and grabs a cigarette and is all chatty Cathy and... I'm thinking, okay, at some point I'm going to freak out. At some point I'm going to say, no, this is not okay, and I don't. We uh, fucked again the next morning and then the next evening and had this two-week-long affair the whole time he was in L.A., and then he flew me up to be with him in San Francisco, and then he flew back to England. I thought, well, I don't know what to do now. He and I had had such an amazing bond, and I was convinced that despite the fact that we... Could not be together now that we were destined for each other because no one else would ever understand what I needed in a sexual relationship, in an emotional relationship, because his brutality, his roughness, all I wanted to do was to do anything he wanted for me. You know, like even the next morning after this like rough and terrible sex, I was like, can I get you coffee? Can I get you cigarettes? I have drawn you your bath. You need me to scrub your back? And he's just laughing. He's like, oh, this is delightful. Thank you, dear. Thank you, honey. Uh, When he went back to London, we kept in touch, and we would have crazy phone sex, and I would write him these incredibly sexually explicit letters, and he would write them back to me. And then one day, we're having this conversation, and I'm masturbating, and he's like, oh, remember how hot your pussy was, and da-da-da. And then he said, do you know what would be really hot? You know what would turn me on is if you were my slave and I owned you. And my whole body froze, and I thought to myself, oh, my God. You imperialist fuck, you son of a bitch. How dare you try to lay that kind of, like, what? I would not be a slave, really? Who do you think you are? And then he said, Oh, you're right, you'd make a terrible slave. And I said, You know what? Honey, if I were a slave, I would be the best goddamn slave on the planet. I would be the most expensive house slave ever. However, I'm not going to be a slave because that shit is fucked up. And he said, If you were a slave, you would be knocking over pitches of milk in the kitchen. Just so you could get punished. Oh, master, I seem to have spilled the milk again. It's time for more spankings. And I kind of laughed. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that would probably be me. And it was funny because I had never out loud shared that with anyone. But he just went there. I said, you know, I'm kind of turned on by this. And so he said, well, you should write about it. So you're write, uh, write me a story. So I started writing the story about the poor, innocent slave girl who was being terribly abused by the evil British sea captain who had visited her plantation, and it was just completely politically incorrect. It was like the worst bodice ripping romance novel. Ever And as I'm writing it, and as I'm getting more and more turned on, I'm thinking, oh, my God, the ghost of Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman are going to rise from the grave and chide me from my terrible fantasies that are setting back the entire race. But I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I, and I would send these to him and he would tell me how incredibly hot they were. I started talking to other friends of mine. I said, I have these fantasies, and I think they're really kind of fucked up. I finally shared it with a friend of mine, another black woman, who I expected to tell me, you sick bitch. And she said, no, this is really hot because it's really fucked up. Because it's really transgressive. That's why it's exciting. And I thought about it, and I said yeah, there's something to that. There's something to the fact that I'm not supposed to be aroused by my helplessness. That I'm not supposed to desire to have my power stripped from me. That we have fought so long and so hard to be independent and to be feminist and to own our own bodies and so to have a sexual desire to lose that control is possibly the most transgressive thing you could possibly do and I had amazing amounts of guilt about it I said I can't I can't do that that is the worst possible outcome for me sexually I'm a feminist I'm an independent black woman what the hell am I thinking Interestingly, I was having this conversation with my friend, the evil British sea captain of my fantasies. And he said, you know, why would you deprive yourself of something you want because of your politics? He said, your pussy doesn't care whether or not your fantasy is politically correct. It knows what it wants. And I was like, well, my pussy is a terrible, terrible terrible creature and deserves punishment and lots of spankings (laughs) I thought to myself wow okay if there's anyone I can talk to about having really deviant sexual fantasies it'll be other kinky people and I started exploring online I started going to kink events I met my first dominant and started exploring SM and exploring play, and I was still too shy to tell anyone about the racially charged fantasies that I had. And I finally did start talking to a couple of people, a couple of other submissives. And I said, well, have you ever had fantasies about submitting to someone and having the fact that you're Black be a part of the scene? And the first couple women I spoke to said, oh, well, yeah, but you can't do that. That's not cool. <laughs> and I said, all right, well, OK, um, they're probably right. But I felt driven to explore it because it was keeping me up at night. At this point, I now had five or six chapters of this terrible story that I had been writing And I kept going back to it and I kept fantasizing about it and I kept wanting to explore it. And I was fascinated by two things that happened. First, the fact that there weren't very many other people of color involved in the leather and cane community at all in the early 90s, mid-90s. There were very few of us. The few who were out and present did not want this topic brought up. Their take on this was, look, you start talking about this shit. Every racist mofo in the 500-mile radius is going to suddenly rise up and say, oh, well, fine, it's obviously okay for us to call black people niggers and just, you know, we're going to revive life slavery. And I said, I don't really think that that's actually the case. And what I was discovering is that far from it, in California especially, where everyone's so politically correct, there were white people who— were reticent to even play with and top black people because it could be seen as oppressive. It could be seen as mirroring an oppressive paradigm, even if it was completely consensual. So even the hint of racism was not acceptable. I had one white top tell me he could not top a black person categorically. It just would, he was outside of his comfort level. And I said, well, are the three black people here supposed to stand in a circle and beat each other because the white people are feeling too guilty about like stepping up to the plate? Super awkward, you guys. Someone's going to have to bear the brunt of this and come and beat my brown ass because I'm just not getting it. (laughs) And so the idea that suddenly there was going to be this wave of racism unleashed was so far from the actual truth. My first dominant would not do any scenes of that nature. He said, I can't. And if you choose to do that at some point in your life, that's fine. It's not going to involve me. And so I said, OK, you know, and again, that kind of got back Bernard. And then I did meet another person who was involved in the scene who was a, a top and a dominant and a sadist kind of person. And he was more than happy to engage in this kind of scene, which was very funny because he was of Jewish descent. So so we we would banter back and forth in the negotiations. And I'd say, how hilarious is it that we're going to have the Jew beating up the black girl and talking trash about her racial and ethnic identity? And he's like, yeah, it's kind of funny. And so we would negotiate these scenes. And it was very subtle at first. We did one scene where we pretended that he was giving me a job interview and I came in in my little suit and he was there in his suit and we're having the discussion and he looks at my resume and says wow it's really funny you're awfully articulate for a colored girl I mean black girl what are we supposed to call you now and he's laughing and very casual about it and saying all the stuff that you are absolutely not supposed to say. If anyone worked in HR and heard the stuff coming out of his mouth in this mock interview, they would have just fainted. And uh, eventually the scene degenerated into this, you know, well, if you want this job, you're going to have to suck my big white dick kind of thing, you know, made me crawl across the floor and was talking about how I was going to shove a watermelon up my ass and all this incredibly ridiculous shit. And the thing is that it was so wrong. It was so wrong. It was hot. And if anyone has ever done anything that made them feel a little dirty, but also really turned on, you know what I'm talking about that sensation of oh my god I can't possibly be playing sexually with something that is genuinely painful with something that in actual real life is terrible but what I realized was at the end of that scene when we stopped and after he had said all the horrible things to me is that I could stand up on my own two feet and say that sucked I hated you I hated you purely and honestly for a good couple of hours god that felt good Let's have a snack. (laughs) And to have that permission to feel that hatred. And from his POV to say, wow, that is stuff I would never say to anyone. And he said, I felt a little bad saying it to you. He said, I was aware that you wanted it. I was aware that this was consensual, but it still felt uncomfortable. And he, from the dominant point of view, said that having to push past that discomfort and then see how I was uncomfortable and how unhappy I was turned him on because sadists are sadistic. And so the fact is, is that that dynamic fed itself. And it was really fascinating. We spent weeks pulling that apart and talking about it and getting more comfortable with it. And I had decided at that point, this was not the kind of scene that I was going to do every Thursday night by A long shot, but I did want to explore it as long as I was exploring it with someone I cared about, someone I trusted, someone who knew me very well. I had decided I wanted to do a somewhat more elaborate scene. And it's interesting because I look at my current situation where if I'm going to do this sort of scene, there's negotiation, there's planning, there's discussion, which is different Than how I first got into it. And I'm not gonna say one is better or worse for everyone. They have to find their own organic way into this. And if there's any doubt in your mind that you trust the person you're engaging with, turn back, pause, hit the pause button because you're going into really deep water here. I thought I knew how deep the water could go. I had had years of this relationship with a British guy that we kept in touch, saw each other over the years, several times after that, you know, then I moved into the King community. I was already presenting and teaching and talking about classes. I had done scenes that had been racially charged and I felt like I knew what I was doing. And I then negotiated to do a very intense race play scene. So the whole point of the scene specifically was going to be that some terrible racist person had gotten me and was going to beat me up and call me terrible names. I knew what the parameters were. The person I was playing with was someone who was a part of my extended leather family, that being people who we have forged bonds with and we feel very close to. We talked about what the scene was going to look like and I felt really secure going into this, that this was going to be cool. It was going to be edgy. And there were some emotional risk. but I felt like we had mitigated it because we had negotiated. My friend G was someone who was well known in the local and national community, was a presenter, also originally from the South. So even though he didn't have much of an accent, every once in a while he could turn on the twang and I said, this will be perfect. You can have that little redneck thing going on. This is awesome. He was the sort of person that had that smile that lit up the room, was very affable and very gentle and very sweet. And, you know, he's taller than I am, bigger than I am, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, smiley baby face guy. And also a skilled player, which was very important to me because I wanted to make sure that if I was playing with someone who was going to be doing stuff that was emotionally and psychologically edgy, that they had their game down when it came to the physics of kink. If he's going to be tying me up, he knows what he's doing. If he's going to be using a whip on me, he knows what he's doing. I don't want to have to worry about those other aspects of the scene, which are critical, vital aspects. And I want those firmly in place. So what we had arranged was that we were going to, within a three-month period, have this scene. And we did not specify exactly when it was going to be. So there was an element of surprise much like the Spanish Inquisition, no one ever expects the sudden outbreak of the race play scene, right? So we agreed that there's a certain number of parties happening in this three-month window. And at any one of those parties, he could initiate this scene. So we had that additional element of surprise. And the scene was going to be a situation where he grabbed me and threw me into the dungeon and was going to call me all sorts of terrible names. And it was certainly going to be racially charged and that was our negotiation and uh, so what was great was that over the next month or so if i saw him at a party i was on edge i was like is he is this is it is it now is it going to happen is this is it now so i was very much on edge and i had that extra charge and it was really hot and so by the end of the night he hadn't played with me i was like oh okay woo all right on to the next weekend and so the the anticipation kept building which was really hot I'd say it was the second month. So we had gone through about three or four weeks or so of seeing each other at parties and events. And I was at a party standing at the snack table and I'm talking to my friend's partner and she's chatting about something and I'm not really paying attention. And she says to me, oh, did you hear that there was a fire yesterday in so-and-so's barn?" And I'm looking at her and I said, what are you talking about? I don't know anyone with a barn. Wait, who are you? Who's? What are you? And as she's explaining this story to me, and I'm completely disoriented as to what she's talking about or who she's talking about, suddenly I have a bag over my head and I'm getting pushed down and dragged into the dungeon and I'm like, oh my God, this is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, maybe this was like a part of the scene. And I'm like, okay, great. All right. getting the headspace. i now being abducted and dragged to the dungeon. And it was totally scary. So I get pushed down and I'm dragged into the dungeon and they take the blanket off of my head and I'm on the ground panting and my friend standing over me, grinning like a fool. He's got his boot on my chest and he looks down at me and is like, hey now, how y'all doing? And I'm looking up and I'm like, oh, he's got the accent on and everything. This is going to be hilarious. So he yanks me up by the hair and throws me up against a wall, I think at first, and uh, just starts sort of shoving me around and pushing me and calling me a nigger bitch and who the fuck do I think I am and And at first I'm just getting sort of angry because, you know, I I don't like that word. It's very provocative to me. And my first reaction is always anger. And so I turn around and I start trying to kick him in the balls and he restrains me and pushes me back and gets some help from some other folks. So at this point now, there's three or four people holding me down and tying me in rope and putting me up against this huge piece of wood so that I can be tied down. And now I can't move. And he's standing there grinning at me and he's looking and he says, well, you know, I know y'all saw what happened last night and you're going to be a good nigger and tell me what you saw or am I going to have to beat it out of you? And I said, oh, okay, this is one of those scenarios where he is the evil redneck and he's going to make up some excuse to beat the crap out of me. And so he does. He at first is just slapping my face and he's using a whip and he's repeating this question over and over and over again. Tell me who burned down the barn. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. And at this point, what's interesting is that the scene now becomes about me withholding information from him. And I don't have the information he wants. And so I said, well, okay, I guess he's just going to keep hitting me until he gets tired of hitting me. Now, when we had discussed the scene, initially it was supposed to be fairly circumspect. I'm going to grab you, I'm going to call you these names, I'm going to beat you, then I'm going to stop. And that was pretty much going to be it. Uh, In terms of ending the scene, it was going to be my call If something went terribly wrong, I could always use my safe word, and the purpose of a safe word is having a word that is unusual that you use to stop a scene. The default would be red. You know, if you say red like a stoplight, stop. And I generally didn't use safe words in scenes because usually I would just, if I was having a problem, if something was wrong, I would say, hey, I'm having a problem, something's wrong. (laughs) I'm very, very vocal that way. Interestingly, what started happening as the scene went on and as he kept, you know, with the spankings and the boot to the butt and with the whip, the sensation began to overwhelm me and the repetition of the question began to overwhelm me. And I went from being angry to being confused and afraid. And I said, I don't know what's going to happen if I can't tell him the answer to this question. And the first inkling I had that something wasn't quite right was at one point I had gotten loose from the rope and started running (laughs) towards the door and was caught and dragged back by a bunch of people. Now, mind you, these are all friends of mine, and they were recruited to help in just this situation. And yet, my first impulse was, I'm going to kick the shit out of all these motherfuckers. How dare you? Why aren't you helping me escape? Why aren't you helping me get away from this evil, terrible individual? So they caught me and dragged me back and then tied me to a table. And I'm getting struck again with this cane and with his fists and the hitting is going on. And I started to get really disoriented. And at one point, I remember I was on the table And then I blinked, and the next thing I remember is the table was falling away from me, and I was standing up and pushing back against this guy. And one part of my brain said, Hey, what happened? How did you get off of the table standing up? There's a piece of time missing there. And I observed that with my brain, but didn't say anything because I couldn't reconcile it. It didn't make any sense. I'd never seen anything like that happen to me before. And the scene went on. And so at this point, I am now hanging from a hook. There was a a chain fall with a hook in the middle of the dungeon. My feet were on the floor, and my hands were hanging onto this hook tied up. And he was using a a whip. Now, we're talking about a very traditional whip. And the sound of those cracking is very distinct. And previously, I had always been kind of turned on by it. But at this point, I was becoming a little bit terrified because every time it broke that sound jarred me back into this sensation of fear and the desire to run he kept hammering me with this question tell me who burned down the barn you fucking stupid nigger and I went from that initial rage that I had had every time I'd heard that word to this flat empty terror when I looked at his face I didn't recognize him at all he, he did not look to me like my happy, affable friend. He looked like a terrifying, cold, empty, evil white man who had zero regard for me as a person. I again had one of those moments where I kind of blinked and I knew time had passed, but I didn't know how much because I had gone from able to stand to not able to stand. And I was basically hanging from my wrists. And at that point, he took out a knife and pressed it against the lower part of my stomach and grabbed my head and turned it around so I could see the people standing and watching us. And when I looked, I saw probably 20 or 30 white people standing, staring at me. And now at this point, what I found out later was that the scene had gone on for so long and had been so epic That other people, when they were winding up their scenes and they were stopping playing, were just stopping to watch because they were like, this is really intense. This is something we want to see. It's not something you see every day. So what I was observing in reality was a bunch of kinky folks standing around watching a scene. In my head, what I saw was a bunch of white people who were not helping me. These were the people who had brought me back when I had escaped. These were the people who were helping this person torture me. And as he held my head to face them, he leaned in and whispered in my ear and said, I could cut you open right here in front of all these people and no one would do anything because no one gives a fuck about another dead nigger. And at that moment, I felt him push the knife into my stomach and I said, he's right. No one cares. No one will help me he said I'm going to give you one more chance to answer my question and tell me who you saw burn down that barn otherwise I'm going to pull you open slow from your guts to your neck and I wish I could have said that I fought back or that I had some um, sudden burst of strength you know everyone wants to be the resilient person who fights back but um In actuality, what I prayed was that he would do it the other way, that he would start from my neck and pull down so that I would die more quickly. I just wanted it to be over. I have never felt so bereft and alone in any situation before. It was absolutely, genuinely, genuinely terrifying. Not long after that, again, I lost a little bit of time there. Not long after that, the host of the dungeon party came up behind him and told him, We're almost at closing. You have to end this scene. And so he had lost track of time and said, Oh, okay. Well, I guess one we'll scene. So he puts his knife away unties me and pulls me down on the ground and goes to get, you know, water and a blanket and to wrap me up and to do the whole post-scene care because that's what you do. And he comes back and as he approaches me, I start crawling backwards on the floor, screaming and crying. I'm like, get away from me. Don't fucking touch me. Don't touch me. And now people are sort of looking and saying, oh, that's a problem. She's not back from wherever she was. From that point, I only remember thinking, how dare he try to touch me? I had a very hard time reconciling the fact that I was now aware that, yes, this was someone I knew, and yes, this was a scene, and yes, we had been doing some kink, but he had gone too far. And I was furious and terrified. Interestingly, the only person I would let approach me And actually, you know, wrapped me up in a blanket because I was shaking and I was starting to get really shocky was my friend who had done the previous horrible racially charred scene with me. You know, so the evil, the evil racist Jew now came over and was like, I'll take care of her. And my friends were like, well, no, she's we have to give her aftercare. We have to take care of her. And he said, she's not really going to want to deal with you right now. It's obvious that we need to just like go to our separate corners and she needs to be taken care of. They took me home, and I was not even fully present. And this was now several hours later. And they had given me food and water, and I could just sort of look around, and I wasn't really focused, and I was trying to figure out what had happened. What had happened in the scene that was so different than anything else I had done before? What had happened in those moments that I had lost? There were pieces missing. I never had anything like that happen before. I you know, went to sleep I woke up the next day and I was still angry and I was still scared. At this point, people had started talking about the scene on different IRC channels, on different mailing groups, on a couple of websites. People were like this unbelievable fucking thing. And there were several camps. There were the camps of people who were like convinced that I was at fault because I should have safe worded if I was having a problem. There were people of a camp that said he obviously went too far. Why didn't he check in with her? Uh, there were people who'd witnessed a scene who said, yeah, about halfway through the scene, we from observing were able to see that she was not there. We were waiting for her to say for it. The people who were monitoring the party, the dungeon monitors, who were supposed to make sure that everyone's safe were called into question. And their s- response was, well, they're experienced players. They know what they're doing. Why would we stop their scene? My first reaction was that I was very angry at him for not stopping the scene. I said, there was obviously something wrong. Why didn't you stop the scene? His response was, well, you had a safe word. You were supposed to just tell me the information. You were just supposed to tell me the answer to the question. I said, I didn't know the answer to the question. What are you talking about? And he said, well, my girlfriend told you at the snack table before we put the blanket over you. And I said, I had no idea what she was talking about. That's what that was? The, someone's barn burned down? And I said, I don't even know someone with a barn. She's rambling and babbling about some shit that makes no sense to me. And now you're telling me that was the answer to the question that you were doing during this interrogation? I was like, that was not clear, man. That was not clear. Uh, and he said, well, why didn't you say for it? I said, I couldn't. By the time I realized that something wasn't right... In my mind, I was terrified that I was about to be ripped open by some racist white bastard, and no one else was going to help me. That was my reality. I had been unaware of the power of the mind in a situation where sensory overload, the repetition of interrogation, pain, and that amount of energy and that amount of emotional violence can throw you off track of what, quote, unquote, reality is. What was very real was my terror that I was about to die. The idea that I could have stopped that by saying red did not occur to me. And I had no idea that that was even something that was possible. That was a very sobering moment in terms of the realization of the power of what we were playing with, what the the real depth of that power was. I have very few things I regret in my life. Um, I feel like regret is for things that you don't learn from. I do wish I had been able to reconnect with him more quickly. The first couple of weeks after this happened, I was going through an incredible emotional process that I didn't understand. I didn't have anyone to check in with about it. It was sort of me figuring my way back out of this hole. My friend, who at first felt terrible because he had made some tactical (laughs) errors in the scene, he realized later he hadn't thought about the fact that making the scene an interrogation was adding another layer to the play. There are scenes that are just interrogation. There are scenes that are just whipping. There are scenes that are just playing with a knife. There's are scenes that are just being hit with boots and fists. All of those things were present in this scene and on top of that racial humiliation. That's a big frickin' sandwich. I wouldn't trade it for anything because to this day I'm still unpacking lessons I've learned from this. I've learned that no matter how much you trust someone, no matter how much you care for someone, how much they care for you, when you're in the depths of a scene that has a very profound emotional and psychological component, that can just fly away. And now you're dealing with base, brutal instinct. It was so terrifying and so real. I had no idea that my brain had the capacity to really believe my life was in danger even though it was not. I hope to God I never know what it is like to be at the hands of someone who genuinely disregards my humanity. But I've had a little taste of that. And I came back from it. And I have a little more power over it after having survived that ordeal because it was a genuine emotional ordeal. And I was able to understand my responsibility as a submissive, as a bottom, There's this idea that if you submit, that you're like, take all of my responsibility. You are the boss. It's all about you. And I tell people, no, 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 no. It's you as well. You're in there. It took us years, actually, to reconcile our relationship because he felt his trust was violated as well. He, as a top, was relying on me to let him know if things went poorly. And I did not do that. I believe that there are some lessons that you can only learn by jumping into the deep end. And I certainly (laughs) learned a whole lot in that journey. We had our friendship to come back to. It took a while. It It was challenged, but we did it. And that's part of the reason why when people say, oh, I want to do this really hot scene, I say, how well do you know the other person you're playing with? If you genuinely have a moment of true terror or true rage or true hatred, or true fear, are you going to be able to come back and look at that person with compassion? It's very complicated. (laughs) It's complicated, but it's also entirely worth it, in my opinion. I don't know that there's any way that I would have learned as much as I did in those three hours in any other fashion. To this day, to this day, I find an immense freedom, in the fact that I was able to survive that and an immense responsibility, that I have endured that and I'm able to bring it back and say, this is how powerful it can be. Are you really ready to mess with that? That is what the strength of taboos, of racism, of hatred, of fear, that's how heavy that shit is. It's interesting, I'll have folks come up to me and say, I really wanted to do this, and now I'm a little afraid. And I will say, excellent. You absolutely should be afraid. It doesn't have to stop you, but I feel it should give you pause. You know, And if you can work through that fear and that excitement and explore it anyway and take responsibility for what happens on the other side, then take the journey. Because holy crap, it's amazing. It's amazing and it's dangerous, you know, and hot.
1: That is all for this week, folks. This is Cloud Cult behind me now. A little shout out to Risk music intern Sarah Irvin for introducing me to this one. That was, of course, Melina Williams, and you can find her at M-O-L-L-E-N-A dot com. We have a lot of fantastic live shows coming up soon. On the 25th of July, we're at The Pit in New York City with Dan Kennedy of The Moth. And that same night, the 25th of July, 2013, we're at NerdMount with Jay Moore. That is in Los Angeles. On the 29th of August, we are in Austin, Texas. If you live in Austin, write to me at at KevinAtRiskGasShow.com. I want to hear your stories. Let's see if we can put you up on stage at a live Risk show in the great state of Texas. Now, for months and months, Risk fans have been writing to us saying, Where can we find the very first episodes of the show? Well, more and more of them are now available in the album section of iTunes for just 99 cents each. Remastered with all the ads removed. There's 15. Of the very first episodes there now, just search in the album section for Risk in iTunes. Also, of course, our three all-star episodes are there. Don't forget, we teach this storytelling stuff too at thestorystudio.org. In fact, you can find our video lecture series called Storytelling for Business there that you can take in your own time, or you can do one-on-one sessions with me over Skype or Custom Tailor a storytelling workshop for your staff with us. Just go to the storystudio.org and see all that we have to offer. And participate with us here at Risk. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. You can pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. You can follow me on Twitter at Allison, And finally, don't forget... Risk is listener supported. We are a proud member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts. So if you go to maximumfun.org/donate that is where you can truly help us keep this running. We depend on the generosity of the people who love what we do, helping us out there at maximumfun.org/slash donate. And be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. And leaves just one thing left to say. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
2: Someone's gonna have to beat my brown ass.